living proof of her excellence in this field. If you even doubt that further, look at my brothers. They will prove it even more that my mom was a great and is a great cook. One of the things I remember growing up, one of my favorite things about uh, being a child and my mother's cooking was when she would cook desserts. A lot of times she would choose one of us, only one of us, to be the one that got to lick the spoon. Anybody ever have a mom or a grandma that allowed them to do that? They're making some dessert, and they got that good old spoonful of that dessert, and they can't do anything with it. They can't make a full cookie out of it, but they can make a mouthful out of it, right? And so they give you that spoon. And you lick that spoon, and it's just, it's just the greatest taste of what's to come. We used to fight over who got to get the spoon. Me and my brothers, we would fight. I lost the battle most of the time until I got of age. And no one could beat me to getting this spoon. But we fought so harshly over this, who got to get the spoon? I think my mom gave up one day and just said, Daddy gets to get the spoon from here on out. No, none of y'all get the spoon but Daddy. So there's Daddy over there with the spoon every single time, right? But what's so ridiculous about us fighting over who got to get the spoon is that if we would just wait... If we would just wait a little bit longer, we'd all get to have whatever dessert was being made, and it'd be a lot better than just that taste of the spoon. The taste of the spoon was just that. It was a little bitty taste. It was a glimpse. It was a tiny representation of what that great thing was to come. On Sunday nights, the next couple of months, in August and September, we're going to be continuing this study of Rooms to Know. Last week, Kyle did a great job of introducing our study of, of the tabernacle. He went over the, the laver, the, gold, the, the bronze basin uh, that cleanses the, the people, related it to baptism. He did a great job introducing our lesson on Rooms to Know and, and how the furnishings in the tabernacle correlate to something that we see in the New Testament. And throughout this study, we're going to be looking at that and, and, and studying that, a different piece of furniture every single night and looking at its correlation to what we have in the New Testament. You see, the, the, the furniture that we find in the Old Testament tabernacle relates. There is a parallel somewhere in the New Testament that we can find. And we're going to be discovering every single week just how powerful God's design was and is for his people. It's amazing to go back to the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus and to see God's purpose and his design for all these very minute things. These details that are so meticulous. And you sit there and you're reading it and if you're in your day yearly Bible plan, this is where you kind of get bogged down, like, what are we reading this about? Why does this matter? It's these minute details that add up to this great significance, this great tabernacle, this great thing that has, has comparisons from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I think it's an amazing thing we have before us tonight, and, and, and we have been given an amazing blessing 
to be able to look at the books of Exodus and Leviticus and the Pentateuch and how it all came together. How blessed are we to be able to look at it from our lenses tonight? Because we don't have to ask why does this make sense because we know why it makes sense because we get to read the New Testament. We get to see how it correlates. We get to see the comparison. We get to make that comparison. I think we've been given a tremendous blessing as, as people in the 21st century to be able to look back, look back at all these minute details and understand that every single one of them had a reason. Every single one of them had some sort of cause, some sort of purpose, some sort of intentional design that God had. It's amazing to see the foreshadowing that we see of this physical tabernacle, this physical place, this thing made of corruptible things like wood and, and, and bronze and all these different things that are corruptible, that, that are physical, that are made by humans. And compare that to what happens in the New Testament where it's spiritual. It's amazing to see how God intended it and designed it to be. And as we look through it tonight, we can look through it with the lens revealed of the whole plan. I even love the, the title, Rooms to Know. I've got to give Craig credit for that. He, he thought of this name. I, I think it's perfectly put, not only because of the Rooms to Go correlation, but more so because these are, this is the tabernacle is something that we need to know. When we look back at the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that sometimes we're like, can we skip to the Joseph story? Can we skip to the fun stuff? The Noah and, 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 and all the, the, the Daniels and all those different things, and David. But without these little minute things, the New Testament, what we read in the New Testament, and what Christ did for us, and what we read in the book of Hebrews, and the stuff we're going to be studying about the next two months, they, they don't mean as much. But thanks be to God that we can go back to the Old Testament. We can look at it through the lens of knowing the rest of the story. I think the title, Rooms to Know, is the perfect title because this information, these things that we're going to be talking about in these lessons are things that we need to know. And God deserves to have told. Because think of all that He did to make Think of all that he had to do to make it happen. And so that's why we're studying this study this next couple of months. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. In chapter 25, there's this, we need to have a tabernacle, a place where the Ark of the Covenant can be, uh, can, can reside and, and to where we can go and, and have sacrifice and worship. And so the next couple of chapters is the minute details that God prescribed Moses and Aaron and the leaders of, of Israel to create it exactly like he wanted it. And in chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, it starts talking about our piece of furniture tonight, the altar of burnt offering. Before we get started, after worship, if you want to come down, you can come down the invitation, but I'm not talking about that. But we're going to have the tabernacle is right here, this model tabernacle my mom always had in her Bible school. I've put it on the, the Lord's table. I hope that's okay. Um, 
I put that together. It took a very long time. If you're an, uh, a visual learner, come on down, look at it. It's very amazing, the intricate details. Uh, be, feel free to come on down after and look at it. It's a great thing for you to get your mind around. It. But as we look at the text tonight, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 27, we're starting to talk about our next piece of furniture, the altar of burnt offering. Here it says, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. And you shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a gate for it, a grate for it, excuse me, a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the two rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it was shown to you on the mountain, so you shall make it. As we think about this passage tonight, realize we're going to be going all throughout kind of the Old Testament looking at different passages, different examples about the altar of burnt offerings, so just bear with me as we go through these passages. But I think it's important for us to understand what it was, what it looked like, what exactly the altar of burnt offering meant to, that, to those followers of God and what it can mean to us tonight. Just to get a picture of what we've just read, this altar of burnt offering uh, this talking about cubits. Well, when you think about its length, it's over seven and a half feet long. Seven and a half feet long. It's seven and a half feet wide. And it's almost five feet tall. So some of you shorter people may need a stool to, to do the altar, to perform the sacrifices, but it's, it's almost five feet tall, right? So just getting your mind around that, seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, almost five foot tall. This is a massive altar, pretty massive in its size, not, not too massive, but definitely think something to see. One thing that pointed out to me in these eight verses is this idea of the horns in each of the corners. What's that about? That was a weird thing I, I don't think I've ever noticed before. But these horns represented something, not only that animals were being sacrificed there, but if you were to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 18, I believe uh, we can see that there is, is something bigger going on here than just a random placement of horns. I think it signifies the strength that is represented in horns. Because David, again, if you'll turn to Psalm chapter 18 and verse 2, he, he, talked, he, he refers to strength from the horns the horns of something turn to psalm chapter 18 and verse 2 it says the lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer my god my strength in whom i will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and you may have read this passage before. This is a great passage of comfort, of, 
of something and you're in a hard time in your life, it's a great psalm, a verse to go to about God being this refuge, God being this shield, God being this strength for David. But have you ever noticed this phrase, the horn of my salvation? I don't think I've ever taken stop to pause and think about what David's saying here, but I believe he, he is referring to the horns that were on the altar of burnt offering. The horns of my salvation, it's this idea, this, this physical place that David could correlate where salvation was found. It was right there at that altar of burnt offering. When David says, the horns of my salvation, my stronghold, this is that idea that David is giving. And what a powerful image. A powerful thought to think that this piece of furniture was so ingrained, such a part of David's mind associating it with salvation that it's being used in this image in the book of Psalms. But isn't it interesting to read all these other minute details in this passage in, in Exodus chapter 27? To read all the, the intricate details about the pans and the ashes and the shovels and the basins and the grates and the poles and every single detail having to be followed perfectly. An amazing thought and great design like we're talking about. Flipping your Bibles a few chapters later, in chapter 40, we're going to be seeing the, the installation of the tabernacle and, and how it is erected and arranged. Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 6, it says, Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Skip over to verse 10. It says, You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and, and all its utensils and, and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. And so from these two verses, we're seeing two different things about the altar of burnt offering. The first thing is that the altar of burnt offering must be the very first thing that people see when they walk into the tabernacle. The very first thing that, that people see is this big, massive altar of burnt offering. What's the significance of that? What, what, what is the reason that that is, is specifically said? Because before you see the laver or the altar of incense or the menorah or the table of showbread and all those other things, you have to look upon the altar of burnt offering. What's the significance? I think the significance is there. The altar is there first for a very specific reason. The altar must be viewed first because it tell, it, I think I get from this that before you do anything else in your approach to God, before you do anything else in your approach to God, you have to deal with sin first. Before you can proceed any further, before you can go anywhere else in the tabernacle, sin must be dealt with first. Before you can be cleansed at the laver that Kyle talked about last week, before you can proceed anywhere else further, sin must be dealt with first. Penitence and sacrifice must occur before anything else 
in our walk towards God. That's the first thing that we learn from, from this verse in Exodus chapter 40. The second thing is that the altar of burnt in, of, of burnt incense, excuse me, the altar of burnt offering, it says, it shall be holy. It had been consecrated, and it shall be most holy, it says. And there's a reason for that we're going to talk about a little bit later, but isn't it amazing to think about this physical object carrying such sacred message? You see, we don't have that anymore when we think about Christianity. But to the Jews and to the Israelites and to, to God's people back then, this was the physical representation of salvation. The physical representation of forgiveness. It's amazing. Look a couple pages over probably in your Bibles. In the book of Leviticus, at the beginning of Leviticus, we see some more details and some more instructions about the sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord called to Moses... And spoke to him from the tabernacle of the meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put the fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The text goes on to explain what the priest should do when it is a sacrifice of the flock and what the priest should do when it is a sacrifice of birds. And there's some minute differences of what God expects. But isn't that an amazing passage? That I, I want us to think about the image that we just read. And we read those things and we see those, we, we, we know what it says, but have you ever pictured it? Really? Taking the time to, to, to picture what this would have looked like. The very first thing that you see when you walk into the tabernacle is your feet standing in pools of blood. Why? Because in verse 5 it says that they are to sprinkle blood all around the altar of burnt offering. All around the ground and on the altar they are to sprinkle this blood. Not only that, we learn from this passage that the priest was to burn the entire animal. Look at verse 9. It says, The priest shall burn all on the altar. Verse 13, The priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. Verse 17, The priest shall burn it on the altar. Every single time, the, the, the expectation is that this entire animal is going to be burned. 
in this sacrifice. So you walk into the tabernacle, and the first thing you see is your feet in pools of blood around the altar. What's the first thing you hear? Animals crying. I don't know if you've ever killed an animal. I grew up on a farm. I killed some animals in my, in my life. I went to college. There's this thing called goat roast. Jay, we don't like to talk about it because we have seen some horrifying things. We roast some goats and we go straight up Old Testament style on these goats. At least my group did. Gave me a great appreciation for those priests of the Old Testament. The sounds I heard are things I need to see someone about. I mean, these are things that I never want to hear again. Think about that, though. You walk into the tabernacle of meeting, you see the blood everywhere. You, you, you hear these animals crying out for their lives. You see priests. Can you imagine the priests sweating, offering up these sacrifices? Can you see the picture that we can see in this passage? I don't mean to be gory, but seriously, it must have been an awful sight to see. Think about the entrails. I'm not making this up. We read the verse, verse 9, you shall wash his entrails. Can you think about all the entrails that were surrounding the altar of burnt offering? It's no wonder that Kyle talked about a laver being right beside the altar of burnt offering because of how gross the altar of burnt offering must have been. But see, there's a message there. When, when we realize the altar of burnt offering is representative of just how gross sin is. If you're going to ever deal with sin... It is going to be gross. It is going to take a significant sacrifice. Not just a little bit of the animal, but every single part of it. Dealing with sin and, and taking care of that debt is a serious matter. It isn't just something you press a button and it's over with or, or, or something that, that is easy. It is gross. Dealing with sin is always going to be ugly. Flip in your Bibles a few more chapters in Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, it says, And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Think about this idea God establishes when it, when it comes to this altar of burnt offering. The fire of this altar shall never be put out. Why? Because it was a constant daily reminder that these people needed to deal with their sin. These people needed to deal with their failure and their shortcoming, and that fire over there is a reminder of how you can deal with it. This altar of burnt offering was a daily reminder of taking care of the sin. It was a daily reminder that they needed forgiveness, that they needed atonement. 
And that's exactly what that altar offered the nation of Israel. This idea that the fire shall never go out. One last passage in the Old Testament. Look at verse chapter 17. In Leviticus chapter 17, we're going to learn something else about the altar of burnt offering. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. This is in a longer context of, of God commanding that they not eat blood, but we do learn something about the altar of burnt offering here. When it comes to the altar of burnt offering, it says you have, God says, I have given you atonement through the altar of burnt offering. I have given you atonement. What he's saying is, I have, I have forgiven you. I have given you salvation. I have atoned for your debt and your sin through that altar. And how, does I, how do I do that? Through the blood that is sacrificed on it. The very thing that keeps us alive is blood. And what he is saying is, I have offered you life through the blood that was shed on that altar. So the very thing that, that caused those animals to die is the very thing that caused us to live. What an amazing design. And we're only going to see that increase as we continue out through the New Testament. All of what we've just talked about and read about from the Old Testament, everything we've read to this point, is just a taste. Everything we've read up to this point is, is, is the taste of that spoon, just, just a glimpse of the foreshadowing that was to come. Now let's journey to the New Testament. The New Testament, where it's no longer a physical tabernacle, a physical place, an altar that you can look at and, and be reminded daily. It's not a physical altar. It's not a glimpse. It's no longer a taste. It is now the burnt offering that was once for all delivered. We're talking about Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, we did a study a while back as a congregation on Wednesday night. If you study the book of Hebrews, it is the book that references Old Testament things more than any other book. And so obviously, the, the book of Hebrews mentions the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Let's read verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 9. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead work to serve the living God? I love how the Holy Spirit says it here. It describes the sacrifice of Jesus. Through Jesus, through Jesus' sacrifice, we have been given this more perfect and greater tabernacle. It's not physical acacia wood. It's not all these minute details, that this, this creation of, of man. 
It's not this corruptible wood or, or these things that will pass away, not of this creation. It's no longer even about bulls and, and, and goats and calves. It's about the blood of the Son of God. And so he says, if the blood of animals was able to sanctify, how much more will the blood of Christ sanctify? How much more will the blood of Jesus deal with sin? Look at chapter 10. In chapter 10, let's read verse 1. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins, but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Skip down to verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. You see, because those physical emblems of the tabernacle, this, this altar of burnt offering, it never completely dealt with sin. It never completely took away the sin of the people. It was a reminder all the time of their sin. Their sin was constantly placed before them every single day. From year to year, when they would come and offer a sacrifice to the Lord, there was that reminder. And that sin was taken care of for that year, but it was rolled forward and rolled forward and rolled forward and rolled forward and never really ever taken care of fully. And so we learn in this passage here in the book of Hebrews that there is a difference it's no longer putting a band-aid on the problem. We learn of a sacrifice, of a fire that could finally be put out. You see, that altar of burnt offering in the Old Testament, that fire could never be put out because the sin was never fully taken care of. So that fire said it shall never go out. The book of Hebrews says Jesus made a sacrifice fire to go out once for all Jesus made a sacrifice for the people for his children with Christ's sacrifice we see something God was able to do through Christ that nothing else could have possibly done completely erase sin and that fire was able to go out because in verse 10 it says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So tonight, as you, as you think about all these passages and you take all of that in, why does it matter? Why, why is this a, a thing that we should know? Why is this something we should take the time to talk about? Why is this piece of furniture so important tonight why have we bounced around all these scriptures talking about it well it's because without the altar of burnt offering 
there is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. There is no sanctification. There is no justification. Without the altar of burnt offering, there is no redemption. And because of that, without the altar of burnt offering, there is no salvation. When we think about our altar of burnt offering, who is that? That's Jesus and the sacrifice that He gave. Does the knowledge of what Jesus did affect you tonight? I feel like time to time Christians forget just what Jesus had to do. I think from time to time Christians, it, 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 it becomes dull on them And we know what Jesus did, but we don't allow that knowledge to push us to change or affect us anymore. When was the last time thinking about what Jesus did for you made you change something about yourself? When was the last time that you thought about our altar of burnt offering, Jesus Christ, and changed something about you? Does the knowledge of what Jesus has done for your life change anything about you? Does it still have effect? You look at the Old Testament, that altar must be holy, it said. Well, Jesus is holy. The most holy. The Old Testament altar must be the first thing that you come into contact with. Well, in the Christian walk, guess what the first thing you must come into contact with? It's Jesus. We talked about how to get there last week with the laver, the washing, the baptism, the cleansing. The Old Testament altar was to never be put out. Here we have Jesus offering a one-time offering for all of history and for all nations. But guess what? In order to accomplish this, in order to be our burnt offering, Jesus had to give every bit of Himself. Jesus had to give every single bit of Himself. He could not reserve a single part of Himself for this sacrifice, just like those Old Testament offerings. Not just some of the the cow, not just some of the flock, not just some of the bird, all of the bird. Jesus had to give His entire self. The perfect Lamb of God, His body was ripped, His blood was spilt, His life was taken. Paul said, Christ emptied Himself. He emptied every single drop of Himself for us to be our altar of burnt offering. What should this knowledge produce in us? Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, I believe the knowledge of this must produce something in us tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2 Beginning in verse 21, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness." by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer 
of your soul. Jesus bore our sins with his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live to righteousness. The question tonight I have for you and for myself is, are we dead to our sin? Are we living for righteousness? Because the fundamental part, the, the fundamental thing about Christianity is if you are not dead to yourself and to your desires and to your sins, the whole rest of it is useless. This altar of burnt offering that Jesus offers each and every one of us, if we do not first deal with our sin, His sacrifice is made useless on me. It doesn't matter what Jesus went through if I don't take advantage of it. It doesn't matter how much pain and how much agony and how much blood and how much sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice of all time, it doesn't matter if I don't take advantage of it. If I don't die to myself, if I don't put away my sins behind me and live to righteousness, that's what Peter says he did it for. He did it so that we can be dead to our sin, so that we don't have to have a daily reminder, so that the fire could be put out, so that our sins could be taken care of. Has the sacrifice of Jesus produced these two things in you? If not, why not? You know, if you're waiting on something greater, you're waiting on some, some better plan than the one we read in Hebrews, you're, you're gravely mistaken. There, there is no greater sacrifice. There is no better way than the one that God has designed. Tonight, have you dealt with your sin? You know, we don't have an altar, a burnt offering with blood sprinkled out as soon as you walk into the auditorium tonight, but we do have a way you can deal with your sin. If you think that, that you can live the Christian life without ever dealing with your sin... You are mistaken. You cannot approach God. You definitely cannot be in the presence of God if you have never dealt with your sin. That is why it was the first step in the tabernacle we read in the Old Testament. Tonight it's the same first step for you. Have you dealt with your sin? Or is it simply something you continue to say? I'll deal with that tomorrow. I'll take care of that tomorrow. I'll, I'll put that away tomorrow. If the sacrifice of Jesus teaches us anything, it's that. He has done every single thing possible to take care of your sin. Unless we contact Jesus, the only thing that's left for us is judgment. 
unless we deal with our sin and contact Jesus and come into contact with His blood and, and have His sin, His, His blood atoned for our sins, there is nothing left for us but judgment. And that judgment will come. Whether we've contacted it or not. Maybe tonight in 1 Peter chapter 2 you read about that sheep that has gone astray. That's you tonight. Return to the shepherd. Tonight as you think about your soul and you think about the decisions that you make and you think about where you are headed tonight, you personally, have you dealt with it? Tonight may be your opportunity to come before brothers and sisters in Christ confess that sin to confess that that you need the blood of jesus tonight may be the night that, that you contact that blood for the first time through baptism through obedience in the way that god has described and prescribed his people to obey him tonight i don't know what you are going through tonight i don't know where you are in the process of your walk with god but i know one thing first step is dealing with your sin. So let's deal with it as together we stand and sing.